Hi, I'm Poonam Tanvate. I'm the moderator for today's panel discussion. I'm a co-founder trustee of Tiger Research and Conservation Trust, also known as TRACT. We are based at Nagpur. I'm a member of the State Board of Wildlife, and a former I was a on former honorary wildlife warden of Chandrapur. Uh, today's discussion is uh, uh, on wildlife tourism. Everybody in Nagpur is very well-versed with uh, our fantastic uh, parks that we have around us, and Nagpur is known as the capital of tiger capital. So, and um, we are very happy to have four eminent uh, panelists with us. Uh, Dr. Karant has been our mentor and uh, a very, very senior, as she said, senior person uh, in the world, known uh, as the topmost uh, biologist. We have Dr. Ul uh, Raghu Anish, who is all, all dear friends, and Harsh. So um, we're going to be talking about whether tourism is actually needed, and what does tourism bring to the table? Is it a boon? Is it not required? Uh, are tourists one of the major stakeholders in the conservation process? Or do scientists and the management think that these little areas that we have, which are supposed to be now only for wildlife, should they be kept secure and only for wild animals? So I'm going to open the discussion. It's not a, uh, it's, I'm not going to be uh, really asking questions. It's going to be a freewheeling uh, discussion. I would ask uh, Dr. Karant as to what he feels about this. Uh, thank you, Poonam. I, I think around to this is natural India, that is intact forests and wildlife communities as they evolved millions of years ago, is today restricted to 4% of our country. It's a tiny postage size stamp uh, area compared to the vast area of the country. So if you look at the biology of the species we are trying to conserve, like tigers or whether it's snow leopards or anything else, any, any larger animals or some of the birds, this is too small an area. So to me, as a conservation biologist whose primary interest is saving wildlife, this 4% has to go way higher. If we are to save these species into the 22nd and 23rd centuries, particularly given the rapid development as well as potential effects of climate change and many other things, we need to push that area up to 10% or perhaps more. So this is the goal for conservation. So everything else that happens, what role it plays in this attempt to increase that area is to me the central issue. So rather than getting emotional about tourism, I think what we have to see is, can nature tourism contribu contribute to this process of pushing this minimal 4% to 10 or 15% or higher? I think it has an important role. I, I do not believe it should be thrown away. And the important role comes in two forms. One is expansion of this area a conservation area, which is from 4% to higher, requires a lot of public support. The public around this area and away from this area need to really appreciate the value of nature, value of intact biodiversity, if the uh, implementation of this expansion is to happen. And wildlife tourism has a crucial, crucial role in creating that positive view of wildlife among people. And if we do it right, 
I think it can be done. If we do it wrong, that perception it may change to something that, oh, this is not for us, this is all for the rich people. So it's really important that its educational value is fully exploited rather than, uh, rather than the fact that it, it's a, it is driven by commerce or motives of money. The second way in which I think it can really contribute, if you look at it, why is this area outside not, not filled with wildlife? Why is it not home to an intact assemblage? Because human use has altered, continuing human use is altering it, and if we, can, if we have to bring it back uh, to the natural state we want it to attain at some point, we need to change that land use. So, but the land use primarily of the bigger area, I would say roughly 10% is under government control, but beyond that if you have to go, it is in private hands. It is in, uh, in the hands of farmers, cultivators. Now, unless they change the land use from a crop to having wildlife on their land, this is not going to happen. So why would a farmer change his land use in favor of wildlife? Obviously, his livelihood comes from the land. So unless the revenue generated from wildlife tourism changes land use through economic means, by appealing to his economic incentives, I will make more money by having people watch elephants around Nagarhole or tigers around Tadoba rather than by growing ragi or some crop. So this change is something wildlife tourism has the potential today uh, it has the potential because we now have a 300 million strong middle class with disposable incomes who, are, who want a natural experience and they're getting it in many forms, including very wrong ways of enjoying nature. But the point is this economic power of tourism has to be pushed into making land use change. And this is to me a complicated task. Uh, and honestly, in my opinion, the tourism industry has largely failed in doing this. It has worked on a very short-term profit cycle of building lodges and making profits and uh, without really contributing this expansion of parks. But in other countries like South Africa, around national parks, private conservancies have sprung up. Like Kruger National Park is 30,000 square kilometers. Around it are private conservancies. The, uh, where the, from agriculture to uh, animal husbandry to wildlife hunting to wildlife tourism. Over the last 50 years, land use has changed, expanding the Kruger by multiple times. The same thing happens in many African parks. The problem is land holdings there are large. So a typical farmer owns uh, five square kilometers or 500 hectares. So you assemble about t uh, five of them, you can create a small sanctuary. The problem in India is land holdings are extremely small, so to drive this economic change towards wildlife, you have to assemble a large number of farmers, make them cooperate, work together on some, some sort of a scheme. It's politically very messy, it is difficult, and the luxury tourism industry has not worried about doing this at all, by and large. They have stayed out. But can the corporate sector do it at all? I'm, I'm positive about it can. The example comes from not from tourism industry, but from the agro-farming industry. ITC, for example, was able to uh, convert uh, in Andhra Pradesh, Badrachalam paper board, multiple square kilometers of area to bamboo, 
they wanted to use the bamboo for the paper mills, but the farmer grew bamboo because of a commercial profit he made. Similarly, large areas in Karnataka were converted to tobacco by small farmers joining into a system of land use change because ITC was buying the tobacco. So the agro-industry, I think, has the model of working with small farmers and assembling them into large, large enough areas of 15, 20 square kilometers so we can have private uh, conservancy. So I think this really is the key and this is where we should look at rather than just criticize wildlife tur uh, tourism. I think it can be turned into a positive force. Thank you, Ulas. Uh, just taking your, what you said forward. So um, do you think that um, um, this uh, tourism which is growing and which has brought in benefits in, in, uh, in ways which, uh, you know, benefits to local communities, which has helped conservation in part, do you think uh, this can be uh, privatized? Uh, Anish, what do you think? Uh, well, first of all, I completely second what uh, Dr. Karanth has just mentioned. Um, as conservationists, uh, we have a tough job because our main purpose is to see that we create landscapes where wildlife can thrive. It could be big animals, it could be small animals, it could be soil microbes, all those put together. The major stakeholders in this field is the government because nearly 10% of the land still is under control, the forest land I'm talking. Then there are communities. Um, so communities have a perception that, and obviously for right reasons, that they have been kept out of this entire tourism game. Um, it is changing in certain areas. For instance, if you go to a place like Eagle's Nest, which is in Arunachal Pradesh, uh, very well known for birds, there the entire tourism outfit is run by local tribes. The entire money from tourism comes to the uh, tribals. Similarly, when you go to Ladakh, which is a low-density landscape, trans-Himalayan landscape, you don't have forests there, but and also human densities are low, there again tourism has played a pivotal role in improving the livelihoods of people. This is just augmentation, mind you. They have not shifted from their traditional farming or whatever that they are doing, but there is a good amount of money that they make uh, from tourism. Uh, similar things you see in uh, the marine areas, if you look at not only in India but abroad as well, where uh, local communities are involved in tourism. Uh, what we have to see if in India, because India is 3.5 million square kilometers, uh, on paper we are one-fifth of India is classified as forest. But all of us know that only about 50% of that, what we call forest, is in relatively good condition. Only 5% of India is protected in term, either as national park, sanctuary, conservation reserve, and community reserve. 5% uh, is not enough to sustain a 1.3 billion people because from these, what is the main purpose of a thick, good quality forest. Obviously, it is to conserve species, but for human beings, it is water. So when you talk of forest, you cannot 
ever forget that that's the place where water actually either originates, that means it precipitates there, or it is feeding the rivers. So all our economic gains, which means through any business, you could be in IT, you could be anywhere else, you cannot do well if you don't have good quality water. Right? India is 65% agrarian. 65% of people in India are still dependent on agriculture. So that is a very, very important stakeholder. And they are directly dependent on surface water. In the last 20, 30 years, and you read in newspapers on a daily basis that rivers are dying, drying. That's largely because of forest degradation. Because when we say 20% of India is forest, of that only 10% is relatively good. But actually, one-fourth of all the forest is actually performing those functions of, and what we call ecosystem services, pollination, germination, all those various things that we talk of. Uh, nearly one-third of all crops are being pollinated by animals. That means bees. Okay, wasps, bees and several other uh, insects are responsible for pollinating one-third of all crops on this planet. Right? And so the only way a country like us can do well is if we can bring the forest back. So of all the industries, and Dr. Karan just mentioned that tourism uh, has huge amount of potential and we should not be emotional about it, unless we are able to make communities understand, because I said 65% of Indians are agriculturists. So there is huge amount of land in their control. Of the 65%, 85% of all farmers are subsistence farmers, which means they are only growing crops, enough crops to survive. It is not for commercial reasons. So you can imagine that such huge amount of land is being inefficiently utilized at this point in time. Also, because of these small land holdings, you have pesticides, you have all those things that have to be pumped to keep the yields up. So it's a zero-sum game where they are taking surface water. Now they are even pumping water from the underground water tables because with using solar pumps and all that, which is subsidized by the government. So it is destroying the ecosystem in many ways. Pesticides are killing uh, organisms which are very important for pollination and several other things. So there is collateral damage of this inefficient way of farming. And therefore, if we can find ways to attract these people who are currently just in a hand-to-mouth situation with tremendous amount of debt. India is the hub for farmer suicides on earth and we are not surprised people who work in the field of conservation uh, know exactly why this is happening. And so we have to find a way of ensuring that these people start earning from safeguarding forests. And that cannot happen overnight. It will have to be done in a phased manner which means first is to get cooperatives, which means people come together. You cannot really grow forest in half an acre land. Okay? So you need large tracts and forests. When you grow forest on farm, you obviously don't earn for almost five to six years because the trees take time to grow. So what is it that will sustain those families when we are in a process of agroforestry is one. Uh, and therefore, tourism can play that interim role of 
kind of supplementing their income through this. Taroba is a great example. You are sitting in the capital of Tigers, Nagpur, uh, and Taroba is not far away. And the government, that the state government has started, they have handed over safaris to villages. All the safaris, all the zones in the buffer zone are manned by locals. And that has immediately changed the way they perceive wildlife. Those same people used to think of wild animals as a threat. Today, they are coexisting with them. And so we have examples, and I quoted some more examples. So I think, yes, I think when we talk of privatization, I am a little worried about that. But we need to look at it from a community standpoint, uh, because most of these lodges that are privately owned are owned by people who live miles away from where the forests are. And they set up big, big uh, hotels without understanding the carrying capacity of that landscape. And it, they go after large mammals all the time. So they, they sell their properties in a wrong way, which means people come there to enjoy wildlife like they would go to a circus. So all those things have to change. And I think the best option is that India is the richest in terms of social capital. So how do we harness this strength of ours, which means people, and yet huge number of people living in a lifestyle which is not very different from about 100 years ago. So we are not like many of the West world where the umbilical cord between forests and people is already cut. Here it is still existing. There is traditional knowledge. So a lot of things like cultural tourism, some amount of adventurous tourism, we all became conservationists because we have walked in those forests. We didn't become conservationists because we went on cars to see wildlife. We don't learn about even tigers from vehicles. So, so that kind of first hand, and India has huge amount of territorial forests as well. And these are areas, so I think one is private lands, largely agriculture, that can go into um, agroforestry, and then slowly uh, the animals will come in. Second is territorial forests, which need to be regenerated with the help of tourists. So we have to talk of natural regeneration. Currently, the government is going on a spree of plantations, and they are going to spend millions and millions of rupees and labor on plantation, which is a zero-sum game. We, I normally advocate natural regeneration, and that can only happen if you get into an agreement with people that you will benefit from the wildlife through tourism, and in return, you will not send your cattle for free grazing, and you will not burn the forest, and you will not cut the wood. So it has to all happen in a phase-wise manner, which means their day-to-day -day existence becomes simpler without being dependent on natural resources. So that's where I think we will be able to find some solutions. It's not easy, but there are examples which are uh, showing that this has worked. Yeah, totally agreed. And Taroba is a great model to showcase uh, involvement and participation of communities. Uh, where communities are benefiting, but as uh, Dr. Karan mentioned, that our, you know, community-based conservancies, which can be done in other countries, is not possible here because land holdings are very small. But Raghu, I would like to, uh, you know, bring you into this because earlier we were discussing that when you encourage buffer tourism, 
And in Taruba, we've seen buffer tourism do fantastically. We've created like a social fence because most people now in the buffer villages benefit from benefit financially from tourism. And now they care. They have ownership of protecting every wild boar. Uh, poaching has gone down. And uh, they, are, they feel that they have some right or they need to protect their environment. But uh, there is a risk that you mentioned earlier. I would like to ask you, can you, do you agree to this? Or is there an edge factor where you feel that you know, you're luring animals more towards human-dominated fringes. What do you feel? Uh, I will come to this, but I will try to come to a couple of questions which you did. Um, <clears throat> I think there shouldn't, in an ideal situation, there shouldn't be a reason why we're discussing tourism like the way we different. if we were doing tourism right. Um, and I just like to tell people that I am also a tourism professional for 10 years. I don't stay in one field for 10 years, so I did 10 years snow leopard, 10 years now. So I have looked at it um, more in, uh, from the inside of uh, how the nature tourism or wildlife tourism works. The problem with tourism, why we're discussing is that the way we're running tourism, wildlife tourism right now, has no very little conservation value to it. Uh, it's been grown with market demand. Uh, it has not been encouraged, developed, or promoted within the conservation principle framework. So it, it, it has. So it's like we run the tourism the way we do it in Agra. So you go and select your hotel of your choice and budget, buy a permit, see Taj Mahal, and come out. This is exactly what we do in Tadoba. This is what we do it in Panna. This is what we do it. In. Um, so it has played very little role. We will like to say that, oh, I employ 10, uh, 90 percent of the local people, um, but I'm not doing a charity. I will be doing the same if I do a run a hotel in Nagpur. I will have 80 percent of Nagpurians working for me. Um, so it's not intentional, uh, which is done. We did a, so we looked at the value of tourism in wildlife conservation and for communities. Um, so we looked at find that without intention, 45% of the money it generates goes to the community. But that's not by intention. So it has not had an impact, a conservation impact on it. Um, <clears throat> so if you look at the potential of it, um, the four tiger reserves we did, about, uh, we did the work, there are about 2,600 square kilometer of area uh, where the tourism is operating, which is a uh, core area. And it generates about 166 crores. And of this, only 20% is open. So you're talking about very few small area where tourism is run and we and you convert that into a one square kilometer, how much money is generated. And then you extrapolate in the areas where tiger is present in Madhya Pradesh. Madhya Pradesh has got about something like 80,000 square kilometer of tiger habitat. In the last census, they found about 15,000 square kilometer has got tigers. We have tigers protected within in CTH is only 5,000 square kilometers. You got about 8 or 9,000 square kilometers where we have tigers, but no tourism. The potential of it is about 2,000 crores, which can offer a current model, which is not an ideal model, almost 1,000 crores can go back to the community if we run it properly. And if we do it more, we can make it 60%. So potential is enormous, but we have to do it right. Um, and the problem is that how we can set it, uh, undo the things which has happened. The idea is what Ullas has mentioned, that we need 10%, 50, the aim has to be the tiger. See, 
tiger occupies now 7% of the range. So the, it's the first sign is of extinction threat is the range reduction. We, we want to reverse the process that the tiger occupy much larger areas. So how can we do it? And the, the tourism can be a driver because it's a one industry which could be tiger friendly, it could be uh, nature friendly. Um, so we need to do, do that. It is very, very crucial for us to do it. Now the second question was about privatization, whether it can be privatized. I'm not very keen on privatization because it's, it's commercially, but it can play a very important role. So you have in India, if the examples in Africa, examples from New Zealand, Scotland, the <coughs> land ownership is a large and all, um, holding is large and also ownership is very diverse. There are individuals, the corporate, their community, they own right, they have the right, they own the land. In India, it's the tiger habitat, if you're looking at it, is one agency which owns it, which is tiger, uh, the forest department. Now you have a tiger habitat which is owned by forest department but it's used by the communities. Um, so what, what we need to do is that the tourism brings in the investment that compensates that use and make, so the tiger can add value to the forest and then conservation can happen. Uh, I think, so the privatization uh, may not be the right way, but it's a cooperative management of these areas are required. The key has to be the primary beneficiary of that conservation effort has to be the communities because you cannot have, see the problem what we have is that the tigers we have kept it now found only in protected areas. And the conservation model which we have is very exclusive where we have the, every village has been thrown out. Uh, and the conservation <coughs> limit is within the protected area boundaries. It has no access to outsiders. And outside the boundaries, we have left the conservation for people to participate voluntarily, telling that it's very nice, it's ecologically good, it's beneficial um, for everybody. Um, it, has no, it has no reach. And we, tourism can provide that conservation reach to that. And I think um, it's very important we should do that. And so the buffer, again, for that matter, is very restricted. So basically it works very well, but you see India is huge and there are different parameters for each and every park, like Kana might be different, Manas might be different, Kaziranga might be different, there might be different issues. But uh, a sort of a policy is to be drawn out. I agree with uh, Dr. Chandavat's uh, this thing that, uh, you know, there has to be some policy and we have done a lot of mistakes. Now how we correct those mistakes is for us to see in the future. Just uh, So he brought up Kaziranga now. Kaziranga has is considered to be a success story in terms of conservation, highest density, one on rhino, elephant populations, very good, tiger also, one of the highest density. However, just outside Kaziranga, there is a mountain range uh, district, basically, Karbi Anglong. And there is a direct, I mean, these animals are dependent on Karbi Anglong as, as well. During flooding, they all go up. Currently, most of the corridors, that is, those, it was contiguous, now there are thin strips some of it has been taken over by tea and coffee and the rest is right now under huge amount of quarry. So those people, because they, obviously as a villager, if I can't earn from a rhino, then either I will want to do something else and there if there is a mafia and so they are all into quarrying. So when that quarrying hap is happening, most of these corridors are being snapped. So people are forced to do something because they don't have an alternative to start with. So many of these 
anti-wildlife activities happen because the options of earning from the forest in a constructive way is not there. And so, uh, so the, some of the best protected areas have such severe problems. So I p feel that it's not going to be that easy. Uh, if we use the same yardstick everywhere, for instance, in Telangana and all these areas, the Maharashtra has large number of tigers outside protected areas also. But the moment they get into Telangana, we in Maharashtra joke that they, it's a one-way ticket. They will never come back. However, the forests are there. So in such areas, we need to start small-scale tourism outfits, which will be largely governed by culture and several other non-wildlife things and build it from there on. So there is huge amount of potential not in these uh, iconic tiger reserves, but also in areas which are right now, uh, you know, scattered outside, especially if you look at the elephant problem now, elephants are living inside Bandavgarh. And these elephants are not even from Chhattisgarh. They have been driven away from Jharkhand and from Odisha into Chhattisgarh. Chhattisgarh had no elephants for 100 years. They didn't know what to do. They killed 250 people last year because people went for selfie and puja and all that. From there they get pushed and they get now enter and now they are living inside Bandavgarh. So that is happening because their land where they are supposed to be is highly degraded for mining and several other things. For instance, the Saranda area in Jharkhand is the best forest area there but now degraded. So we need to see how mining and all these can be substituted by tourism. So uh, while developmental projects will come, but if we can somehow create opportunities around tourism, people themselves will go into activities which are less injurious to the environment. Coming back to uh, tourism, maybe last. Uh, I, I think there are many things that can be said. Uh, people have been trickling in. So basically, there was a general consensus that this 4% in which intact nature, wildlife is there, needs to be pushed up much, much higher than it is. This is abysmally low and under severe threat. And in that process of expanding this 4% to 10% or 25%, economic interests of the farmers, assisted by private entrepreneurship, would be a powerful tool. We had kind of broadly agreed on that before we got a bit lost in the weeds. So. Now, what kind of tourism management is capable of doing that? As I mentioned in my, the best example of assembling large chunks of land, changing land use to wildlife friendly uses come from conservancies of Africa, which are very large. Individual holdings are five square kilometers. Now, the best examples of having these kind of cooperative arrangements of farmers and changing land use at a massive taluk district scale is with the agro-industry in India, ITC, Poplars, Wimco, the, not the tourism industry with its short-term view. So I think that option is there. The second big picture we have to remember is that given this economic growth, given the major switch in lifestyle around rural areas, at the time when I got interested in conservation, the biggest problem was firewood collection, cattle grazing. These things are not just stopping because people are being stopped from it. They are going out of work. People have switched to LPG even in the most remote village in Karnataka. Bullock carts have disappeared from Karnataka. Everybody is using those small diesel vehicles. These are significant impacts in terms of 
bringing back nature under a model of economically driven land use change. The bigger picture changes are actually conducive to the kind of changes we are talking about. We need to be smart about it. We need to not view it as an enemy or a friend, but in terms of these bigger economic development that nobody can stop. It's, it's uh, urbanization. When I was born, it was 80% rural. Now it's 55% rural. Rest is service and manufacturing. This is the driver. And if we think we can stop that and create some tourist paradise, it's not going to happen. So, but the economic power of tourism comes from that growth. Because ultimately, if the farmer has to earn more per acre from the land, he needs to get more. And the capacity of the industry to pay him more is critical. So what kind of management can we have? We, I honestly believe the role of the forest department should be restricted to law enforcement, keeping the poachers out, um, keeping the forest intact. There are multiple aspects of tourism and other conservation areas like research, uh, tourism, which is a highly developed profession, even tour guiding. All these should be in the hands of experts in those fields. I think we have too much of a government monopoly on all these things, which needs to be scaled back, which is supposed to be the federal government's aim from the days of Narasim Rao, that we are going to reduce the bureaucracy and encourage uh, people's uh, entrepreneurship. But what has actually happened is a massive growth of bureaucracy. In Karnataka, the entire wildlife tourism is under government control. You cannot have any. At least in some places, you have these tour guides locally hired, the examples you talk. We have a totally nationalized, very, very Russian-style model of wildlife tourism. And I see that making headway in other places also. So we, we, we need to not, and the last thing I would want to add is the word community is being used very, very fluidly. Like community is something there, like a bunny, you go and hug it, everything, it works. It doesn't work that way. You go to every village in Karnataka, there are three political parties, four caste groups, the panchayats, the massive national politics circus we are saving is reflected in every panchayat. So dealing at that level with the complexity of Indian rural society to create this Wildlife-friendly cooperative, is, it cannot be a government monopoly. NGOs with passion have a great, uh, critical role because the government, three years, one guy does a good job, he goes, the whole job goes with him. The next guy is not interested. So we do need to trust not just local communities, NGOs, private enterprise in this task of expanding wildlife. We simply cannot make it a government monopoly. Yeah, no, I just forest department we were talking about um, the thing is if I am the once I had a discussion with the field director and I said the, as a field director and a tiger reserve is it should be the easiest job in the world because I don't have to do a, a single job the, the thing is they stretch their arm to keep their friends and enemy away I think they should stretch the arm to hold us a friend they find everybody uh, and it, I don't have to do it. If I research I need, the best brains in the world will come and do it free of cost. If you want to write a management plan, I don't know, if you, opportunity given to any, 100% of them will be ready to come for tigers. It should be the easiest job in the world and I will take the credit and everybody will do a jo job for me. So uh, I think somewhere something wrong in the system that we are not able to do. People cannot participate. We end up writing papers, um, shouting, litigations, um, or, or donating money. 
and that's how we end up to be not able to participate um, in constructive conservation. Though the expertise, the passion, the money that's been out there is not being utilized just because it's been where they have closed arms. If they open their arms, there are people to hug them and they will be tired of hugs. Um, and it will be a different story. But what excites me most about tourism is that uh, it's not about that much, so much of money. Uh, when we were doing the research there, in the areas where tourism is operating, the problem with where we, the way we're running, it's only impact is limited in the village where it is operating. It has no impact on the neighboring village there is, there is no lodge. So in the village where tourism is operating, we went, we had to drag ourselves out of the interviews with the people because they want to talk about tigers. They want tigers. They, they, they're ready. Even their kettle's been killed, they want tigers. If you go to the neighboring village, we were thrown out. There were villages, we were not allowed to go inside. We have to go get to the MLAs and get the... It's such anti-sentiments are there. So that has to, has to change. Um, but it has the potential to create tiger-friendly communities. But it has to be spread. If I was a field director, I will like tourism to happen in my land so I can control for the benefit for conservation. But we have not done that. It's very difficult to undo it. But if you want to promote it, we shouldn't be following the same model which we have followed. We should be very careful about that. Point totally taken. Uh, I think I'll agree that of people living around in the buffer zones, um, we need to have more specialists coming in. The way we do see tourism, all of you must have gone to Taroba Pench, and the way you see that Mela happening around 40 vehicles around every tiger that is sighted, each one of us feels that how I wish the other vehicles were not there and how it was more systematic. But each of us is doing the same thing that we want the others to follow. So maybe we need more trained guides, trained drivers, uh, a better system, specialists who come and handle tourism. And uh, maybe, just maybe, we need to move away, taking Raghu's point that why only one community, one village benefits and the others don't is because we are being so tiger-centric. Why don't we do tourism for birds, we do angling, we do different kinds, so that every village has something to offer and every village can participate. So on that note, uh, can we open uh, some, you know, we have 10 minutes, they've shown us the board. Uh, could we have some questions? Would any of you like to ask our panelists any questions? You see, uh, the one more game changer in Taroba is that the pressure to, in the core, you, know, you, you see all this tourism thing, tourism business is incidental. Where there is a beach, there is some tourist resort comes up by the beach like Goa. Where there are tigers, all this has to come up. And so we are talking and discussing uh, tourism aspects of whatever is incidentally happened because tigers were there in this protected area which is just hardly 4% or whatever. And our core intention is to increase those areas to big areas. Now you see, according to the Supreme Court guidelines, there are some certain areas which are open and there is a lot of tourism, tourism pressure on those core areas inside those tiger reserves. And uh, the only way it can be a little bit uh, eased out, shelved out is uh, if you have certain things which are in play in the buffer areas or or non-tiger uh, reserve areas or like for the Godajari landscape there are wolves and hyenas. So nobody wants to go and see a hyena. I don't, want to, I don't know why. A wolf. So there are so many things which 
can or could be explored. It's also necessary for the people who go on these hikes or trails to be sensitive to what they're doing. Unfortunately, uh, while I'm sure you're very interested, one of the problems managers or conservation agencies have to handle is a lot of these people come just for walking, shouting, playing music, and uh, you know, we have seen a lot of trashing of the parks, for example, in the Western Ghats when it was freely allowed. So they have kind of controlled it. So you have, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying uh, most people are not like you. They go and the idea of a, the, uh, going out on a hike is to have fun and imitate some Hindi movie film song or trash the place and come. So that sensitive, uh, so I think some sort of a restriction saying nature club members, students, some sort of a prior approval of the people, uh, wetting of the people so they are the right kind of people if we can put a mechanism like that in place first, not allow on a first-come, first-served basis, uh, then I think it's a very powerful tool. It's an underused tool because I used to do that. Throughout my research, I used to take people on what are called very difficult line transit surveys, very disciplined work, and out of them a whole network of conservation is emerged. But that filtering is important. It can't be he goes, so I go kind of a, you know, that filtering process is really critical to that. There are two things here. Is, is reintroduction necessary? That's the first question we have to ask. It's not that reintroduction is like some religious ritual. Specific cases where there is enough prey and for some reason the predator is missing and then you have to bring the animal of the right stage, you have to track it, and most often even that fails. So I, I think a lot of reintroductions uh, fail because they are done wrongly and often they are not necessary. They create man-eating, they create all sorts of problems for local people and turn entire communities and districts against having new protected areas. That's been the consequence from that born free film they started that you can dump animals and they will do well. They don't. They disappeared for a reason. If those reasons are there, the animals will still die and meanwhile a lot of people will die. So reintroduction is some sort of a last resort thing for highly threatened species. So uh, 
lot of people ask this question saying that if the animals have gone down, why can't we reintroduce they breed so well in captivity? The answer is that there is no social acceptance for them, that's why they went. So like Panna where it happened because of poaching, tigers have bounced back. But in other like com multiple use areas, their reasons are very different. So once those reasons are we can solve, then animals will on their own, if the corridors are there, will move back. No forced reintroductions are not required, they're just money churners. There's a huge amount of money is exchanging hands during that process. You can take one more question, if anybody... Yeah. Uh, I'll try to answer that in a very brief way. So these are outside fringe areas or open landscapes where they, they can happen. And also, as it is, if there are no night safaris, poachers are roaming freely in the night. How do you know they are not roaming there? Everybody can roam. Any citizen can roam there in the night. You cannot restrict the rights of roaming and the villagers are also roaming. So in some places, with due thought processes or in the management plan of those maybe the sanctuaries or you know, in the buffer areas, the thought process is that if there are night safaris, one, it will benefit the tourist of a different experience of what nocturnal animals like wolves and hyenas, you can see, nobody wants to see them. But in the night, a porcupine can be seen in Tadoba also. Nobody knows about a porcupine if there are porcupines in Tadoba. Everybody wants to see a tie. So nocturnal Light, uh, you know, uh, nightlife is there, and that is there to be seen. Also, the protection part is there. Uh, no, no. So it just see when night safari is happening. There are, like he says, species coming out. The tourists are on the road; they are not going inside. So one must understand that if you don't crowd around animals along the road. Your tourism is not impacting large landscapes. It's one or two, three, four roads where you are going. And you are not going off. So there has to be restrictions on the light you use and all those things. But night safari per se is nothing, nothing evil. As long as you have follow certain rules. Last question. So everybody should answer this. It will be soon no hair, so don't worry. <laughs> so, no, essentially we have to remember the law enforcement part, protecting forests, is one of the most thankless jobs. Regardless of any criticism you level against a forestry department personnel, it's a job, even an ordinary traffic cop is in way, some way to help the public. Whereas if you are a wildlife protector, everybody including your relatives in the next village turns your enemy. So it, their job is not easy. So whatever comments I make should be understood in that context that I have worked with them for decades and some of
if uh, today India has relatively better wildlife conservation than any other Asian country, certainly our NGOs had a role, uh, certain laws and politicians had roles, and Supreme Court had roles, but the role of good forest officers who did their job is incredible. So it's not, not right to say everything government is doing is wrong. But having said that, to come to your specific question, my own experience with the Forestry Service, not being a part of it but working with it for close to 50 years now, is that in the times when they did their job as law enforcement or logging or whatever, they were very focused, very ground-based, and they did not feel threatened by researchers or anybody else or feel insecure in the presence of someone who knows more than them in some, some area, not law enforcement. Uh, what has happened over time is that very focused forest service has become a very dilute IAS-like uh, structure because of the uh, made into an all India service and all these things. So today, honestly, they don't listen. Very often they don't listen. But there are exceptional individuals who do listen and do things. But if you look at the bulk of the service, I would say it has shifted from being a somewhat specialized service, like Raghu's dad was a DFO for many years from the old school, to a very generic uh, knowing all kind of a thing where they are not willing to listen. That's my honest answer. Thank you. I think we've been buzzed enough. So, th yeah, thank you all. Uh, thank you for coming to listen to us. Thank you for your questions. And towards your acceptance for the session and knowledge shared with us. Our next session is upliftment of folk and cuisine. Those who wish to attend may remain settled. We were uh, in the mid of something and we left. The, and Chef Nitin Shende. So, well. Just a minute. I'll yes, please, 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 please. And then please, we can sure. start.